You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's uh, Chip here, Chip Bennett with Dr. Warren Gage, and we're continuing our study here on Revelation. And we've gone through quite a bit at this point. So if you're hanging out with us and you've gone through all of this, appreciate it very much. You know, Warren, we've covered a lot of material. In the last, last session we were in, we, we covered uh, sort of what we called the railroad you know, pattern where we were taking the book of Revelation and the gospel of John as sort of like second level and first level heaven and earth and seeing how they sort of uh, work together. And I think it's the data is pretty overwhelming, but I think this here becomes just incredible. Basically what we're doing is, is we're reading it chiastically. This is something that, that is just worth its weight in gold to see. And uh, um, I think we ought to just get into it. So let's, uh, let's look because we're, we're basically what you're doing is, is you're taking, if you can imagine, John 1.1 1, 1 and going all the way down or taking Revelation from the, the, the ending of it and coming down to the beginning and then John backwards down to the beginning, the two tie together and, and this really cool, and we'll, and we'll get into that. We'll, we'll show all those things, but um, I think this is, this to me is just unbelievable. So, Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's begin. Now, again, we need to keep in mind that Revelation is largely from the perspective of heaven, mm -hmm. and the gospel is looking at the ministry of Jesus from the perspective of earth, and they're interacting. But this is the primary means of correspondence between sure. the two books. They're fundamentally chiastic, but we also saw that the spinoff was that we found these consecutive yeah. correspondences as well. So we're comparing, we'll begin by comparing the beginning of the gospel with the end of Revelation, mm -hmm and we'll work our way back this way. Crossing in the middle, when the consecutive and the chiastic converge, which is interesting. If they could just see the imagery of an X, mm -hmm. and on the one X, if they could see John 1.1, 1, 1, and on the other X, they could see Revelation 22. And, and what we're doing is we're coming backwards from 22 to chapter one in Revelation, and we're going from chapter one in John through the end of 21, and, and, mm -hmm. and they will intersect in the middle, but this is this is absolutely incredible. So let's let's dig in here. Uh, John begins in the beginning was the Word, and he concludes, "I am the beginning and the end." Jesus says, concludes Revelation twenty two thirteen. So it seems like there's a reflection in the beginning was the Word, looking at the old creation, and then Jesus at the end of Revelation, "I'm the beginning and the end." So he's the consummation of all things. He says. In 1.3 of the gospel, all things were made by him. And then in 21.5, it says, uh, Behold, I make all things new. So we began with a reflection on the first creation, and we end the gospel with the anticipation of the right. new heavens and new earth. And Jesus being a greater than Solomon. Mm -hmm. yeah. Solomon said, Nothing new under the sun, but a greater Jesus than Solomon has come, says, who says, I make all things make new. All things new. One, five to 1.5-9, the light shines in darkness. John says in the gospel, he, Jesus, was the true light, which gives light to every man. And then, so we have light shining in the darkness, but the darkness, we know it's a quarrel. It will, will fight against the light to extinguish it. And Jesus coming into the earth brings light, which will illumine every man. At the end of Revelation 22:5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light, for the Lord God gives them light. So the same idea that the Lord God uh, Christ Jesus, these are in juxtaposition, by the way, is the source of light and the quarrel that has begun at the beginning of the gospel between light and darkness 
is concluded at the end mm -hmm. of Revelation when the light overcomes, finally overcomes right. the darkness. And that's a great theme to see how the light and the darkness is ended here, you know, between the two books. You got the quarrel and then the ending. Let's continue on. This is good. Which again implies unity of authorship. Absolutely. It is telling us that the gospel itself is incomplete without reading Revelation mm -hmm. because we're not told how that battle between light and darkness that's right. um, is concluded. That's a good point. The gospel, 114, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The mm -hmm. idea of God dwelling in this tent in company with his people. Mm -hmm. But that's reflected in Revelation 21.3, where we're told the tabernacle of God is among mankind, and he will tabernacle among them. Mm -hmm. So the privilege that the disciples had to be in the company of Jesus will be ours universally in the, in, in the eschaton, sure. the new, new heavens and earth. Verse 1, verse 17, or chapter 1, verse 17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The end of Revelation 22, 21, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 1, 28, 48, these things took place beyond the Jordan. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's speaking to Nathaniel. Mm -hmm. At the end of Revelation 22, 1 and 2, and he showed me the river of the water of life and the tree of life. Mm -hmm. So there's an, there's an echo there. The only rivers that you have are at the very beginning of the gospel and at the end of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And the Jordan is anticipating, it's a liminal yeah. river anticipating. Sure. For people to, to get an idea of this, you know, when you think of Luke and Acts, which again, you know, I'm sure there's people that would disagree, but have been written together, like we're suggesting John and Revelation written together. You can see that even though Luke starts the gospel with Zechariah in the temple mm -hmm. praying and ends his gospel with the disciples in the temple praying, he also bookends the two, the two books because he has the, uh, the 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 viper that's being thrown into the fire, um, you know, or the, the trees thrown in the fire, but the, calls him a brood of vipers. Only time that word viper is used in, in Luke 3, you go all the way to Acts 28, and you have that word viper again, where Paul's reached into the brush that will be put into the fire and is bitten by that viper. Those bookend those two books. And so to see here that this is and bookending he, it. He, at the end of uh, Acts, he throws the viper into the to, fire. Correct, yes. Yeah. But, but the imagery of the of the brushes, the fire, mm -hmm. the viper, they're all there. And they're bookending. Framing the, it. Yeah, the two books, though, is what I'm, you know, it's mm -hmm. not just that Luke frames Luke. He frames Luke and Acts. I think that's important here, what, what, yeah. that's what you're saying. Because some people might go, well, hold on, How, how's that bookending? Because these are written together, and, and he's, he's bringing themes, in, which we're going to see big time. There's themes that are brought out in John that don't get, completed till the book of Revelation, and that shows an enterprise going on. You know, right. The world of light and darkness. All in stuff. that context of the serpent being cast into the fire, John the Baptist mm -hmm. announcing that, and then Paul enacting, you know, yeah. emblematically enacting that. You have another context with the thing that initiates the action in the Gospel of Luke is the decree that comes forth from Caesar Augustus in Rome that all the world mm -hmm. is to be enrolled. And that's at the very beginning of the Gospel, which brings Mary and Joseph to mm -hmm. Bethlehem. At the end of Revelation, Augustus comes up again, and this, what, this time Acts. Paul, Acts. at the end of yeah. at the end of uh, Acts, yeah, Paul is on his way to Rome, and he's accompanied by a member of centurion of the of the Augustan band. And so Augustus is mentioned again, mm -hmm. only in, see in the beginning of the gospel, Augustus is enrolling all of the world in Pax Romana. Mm -hmm. 
at the end of Acts again, yeah. he's on the way, on his way to Rome to bring them under the scepter of the Son of David and to enroll them in the kingdom of God. That's right. And so that's, that's the right. framing that's going on. That's, that's right. really very powerful. Yeah. I think. And I just I just want I just want somebody who who again may not understand or have studied literature understanding what we're saying here. Just want to make sure they give them some concrete ways. Yeah, to we've see got that. charts on yeah. Luke and Acts yeah. that are the same as these in that kind of detail. Chapter 1, verse 29 in the Gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is how John the Baptist identifies Jesus. And in 22.3, there is no more curse. The throne of God and the Lamb is there. That identification of the Lamb with the divine Lamb. I behold the Spirit descending out of heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him whom John the Baptist identifies as the bridegroom. Jesus has come forth from God. Mm -hmm. been made flesh dwelling among us, and the Spirit of God descends out of heaven too, like a dove, and abides upon Jesus as the bridegroom. Then in, at the end of Revelation 21-2, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That very clearly seems to be balanced. Yeah. The bridegroom comes from heaven at the beginning of the gospel, and at the end of Revelation, the bride comes down from yeah. heaven. And explain something of the parallelism there. Sure. The next one here is pretty incredible. In 139 and 46, Jesus says, come and see. Philip, who here says, come and see. And then in Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. The bridegroom and the bride are inviting That's right. people, and blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. Mm -hmm. But the double usage of come, again, you know, you, you have to, the proof of the pudding is when you eat it, but when you start looking at the vocabulary and the word choices, you start to go, wow, this is, this is pretty incredible, at least, at least to me. In 142, it says Peter, one of the apostles, is given a new name, Cephas, meaning stone. And then in 2214 and 19, the New Jerusalem has 12 foundation stones inscribed with the names of the apostles. Yeah, the name Cephas is just a common, ordinary stone. But the stones of the apostles in the new city are uh, precious stones. Mm. I think there's something of, of, of progress there. God is giving more than he promises. He gives the mm. promise to Cephas, to Peter alone, but then all of the apostles now become sure. precious gems, sure. not just ordinary sure. stones. Peter starts to intuit that too in his epistle because he says we're living stones. Mm -hmm. He's a stone, we're living stones, and then there's, you know, there's. And this... we will be made. Precious stones. That's right. Beautiful. That is the, pre the beauty, the, the charm of the precious gem is that it reflects the light. Mm. And it's got prismatic color, but when the light is applied, in and of itself, it's all dark. Mm -hmm. But when the light is applied, then the beauty is brought forth. I think another thing, too, that's seen in terms of this Joshua typology Joshua builds the memorial at Gilgal, it's called Riverbed Stones. We had the River Jordan at the beginning of the Gospel. At the end of Revelation, we have the crystal, the river of crystal waters. Right. And by that, Jesus, who's greater than Joshua, builds this fantastic city of 12 precious stones. Mm. And then the gates, of course, will represent the, the tribes of Israel, but the it will bring together the people of God, the, the nations. That. So it's beautiful. Chapter 1, verse 45 and 49, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. They're speaking, then Nathaniel confesses, you, Jesus, are the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. And then 19, 11, and 16, behold, one, that is Jesus, who is called faithful and true. 
and he is called the King of Kings. That's his ecumenical name, his gospel name. He's not just King of Israel, he's King of the Nations, mm -hmm. King of Kings. And then 151, we'll talk about this, this is uh, pretty significant. The promise given to Nathaniel by Jesus, mm -hmm. you, and the you there is plural, so it's not private to Nathaniel, yeah. but it's, and that's not evident from the English text, but it's clear in the Greek. In Kentucky, it would have been y'all. Y'all, that's right. Sometimes I wish that they would highlight you in the translations that are plural. I do too. And, yeah. and just to help the reader. You shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's a very specific <laughs> promise. It is. And it says, you know, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending. It's clearly an allusion to the vision that was given to Jacob in mm -hmm. Genesis 28, where he saw the ladder set on, sure. you know, which is really a staged pyramid set on earth, reaching up mm -hmm. to heaven, and the Lord God is sure. standing at the summit. And then in 1911, John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and he who is called faithful and true. And the first angel shows the beast ascending, the last angel shows the holy city descending. So there's a relationship that's being projected from the very beginning of the gospel, the fulfillment of the promise to Nathaniel, to mm -hmm. the end of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And I remember I read all kinds of commentaries on the gospel of John, there is nothing within the four corners of the gospel that would indicate the fulfillment of this promise, this great promise made to Nathaniel. Mm -hmm. So the question is, well, Jesus said it, so we know it's going to happen or had to happen, but where is the fulfillment of that promise? And the commentaries go right over it mm -hmm. because there is no full, evident fulfillment of it within the gospel itself. To see the fulfillment of it, we have to look elsewhere. Uh, then we come to weddings. Uh, in 2 2, chapter 2 of the gospel, we come to the wedding of Cana. Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding. And then in Revelation 19 9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. And so Jesus makes wine. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. In the wedding of the Lamb, Jesus makes wine again. He treads out the wine press of the wine of the rage, the wrath of the Almighty God. Mm -hmm. So Jesus makes wine twice, as John describes it, first at Cana, and then here in Revelation 19, um, 15, which is the very center of the um, revelation of the judgment on Babylon. Mm -hmm. And then we're told Jesus speaks of his death, my hour has not yet come, and then what happens is the hour of Babylon comes, yeah. the hour of her death, where in one day her plagues will come, in one hour your judgment has come. So the judgment of Jesus anticipates the judgment on Babylon, now, the significance of this is pretty amazing because in the gospel, John goes to an elaborate length to tell us how Jesus broke the custom of the bridegroom. Uh, the custom was, uh, and he tells us about that, the custom is you put out the best wine first right. at a wedding. Then after the guests have lost their sensibility, I guess that's better than saying they're drunk, but anyway, after they've lost their sensibilities, then you come out with the worst wine. And, you know, at that point, they don't care. They're, Maybe be easier to say when their taste buds have sort of diminished a little bit. That's, that, that lets it down <laughs> gently. I think that's right. So, and then he's, you know, but he's reproved by the steward of the wedding. He says, mm -hmm. the bridegroom of that wedding says, you've done this all backwards because you've served the, the best wine mm -hmm. last. And so why does, why does the evangelist, why does John go into such detail about the wedding custom? Clearly, it's commending the wine of Jesus, which is inviting us to the Eucharist table, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, we want to taste that wine. What is the best wine? The wine that Jesus makes. 
But there's something else that's going on too, because if you read Revelation, read Revelation in sequence, you come to chapter 17 and the whore of Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. And then in 19, Jesus makes the wine of wrath. He treads out alone, he treads out the wrath of God to make the wine. So if you read the, the books in sequence, what you realize is that Jesus has respected the order of the wedding because in Cana, he makes he offers the good wine, which is the wine, the gospel, mm -hmm. the wine that gives joy to the heart of man. Mm -hmm. But when the whore rejects that wine and becomes drunk, then he serves the worst wine. He treads out the wine of the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. So the sequence is perfect. He gives the best wine, the wine of the gospel. But if you reject the gospel, then there remains only the mm -hmm. wine of the wrath of God. So it makes sense in that context, and you read commentaries, and they have no idea where the full. So what happens is Revelation is helping to explain the mysteries of the Gospel of John. Correct. That we've, you know, where is the promise to Nathaniel? We'll talk about that elaborately. Yeah. But where is? What about the wedding customs here? Why does he go into that detail? Then Jesus says, "Woman, what do I have to do with you? Fill the water pots with water," and they have become drunk with the worst wine. And in seventeen one to two. Uh, the woman who sat on many waters had in her hand a golden cup filled with abominations, and they have become drunk with the wine of her fornication. The woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. So again, that's speaking Eucharistically. Uh, 3.29, then John the Baptist rejoices because he hears the voice of the bridegroom, who is um, the one who has the bride. In 18.23, we read the voice of the bridegroom, and the bride is heard no longer. Let us rejoice, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. But what happens is, in the judgment that comes on the great city, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride is heard no longer. And the bridegroom, they will put him to death, and then he will leave instructions for his bride to flee from the great city before her judgment comes. That's right. So um, that makes sense with the overall theology, really, if you think of Matthew 24 and 5. Sure. Then in 2.15, Jesus pours out the coins of the money changers. He cleanses the temple. He pours out the coins, um, and he drove them all out of the temple. And in 16, angels from the heavenly temple pour out the bowls of divine wrath, mm -hmm. and no one was able to enter the temple. Mm -hmm. So that pouring out language is significant. Sure. It's emblematic of pouring out judgment when he pours out the, the, the coins. 2.16, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. 18, the city Babylon is described, the merchants of the earth, the great men shall stand afar off for fear of her torment. Then Jesus says in 2.17, in the gospel, zeal for your house has consumed me. And in 29, fire comes down from God and consumes them. You can really see here that there's divine wrath poured out on the earthly temple as Jesus cleanses mm -hmm. the temple. But then you can see there's divine wrath poured out from the heavenly temple. You, you can, there's the, this mm -hmm. the earthly and heavenly thing or being bookended in these things that we're looking at here in chapter two. And there's a is, quarrel in the gospel, there's a quarrel between the two temples, the temple of Herod and Christ. Yes. Those are quite parallel mm -hmm. because uh, both begin with scourging. Mm -hmm. That's why Jesus makes the scourge of uh, whip, remember? Because mm -hmm. in Jesus, his own torment, it says he spoke of not of the, the temple of Herod, but of the temple of his body. Right. And so the, 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 the suffering of Christ mm -hmm. begins with the scourging. That's right. And he says it's a den of thieves, sure. and he will be crucified among thieves, so he'll be regarded as a yeah. thief. They see the, in fact, the whole correspondence ends with the, the certification of the death of Jesus is by a Roman spear. 
and that anticipates that the certification of the death of the temple will be by the Roman spirit right. as well. So it's all prophetic. 2.18, the Jews said, what sign do you show us that you do these things? And then the sign in 15.1, angels from the heavenly temple pour out wrath upon Babylon. And John says, I saw another great sign in heaven. So there we are. Yep. 2.19 and 21, destroy this temple, Jesus says. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And so they destroyed the temple of his body. In 21.22, with respect to the new temple, the new city, John says, I saw no temple in it, for the lamb is the temple. So the lamb, Jesus, becomes the universalized emblem of the temple. Mm -hmm. And there's no need for a temple because there's nothing that defiles. That's right. So he's not behind veils. We see him in his full glory. Mm -hmm. All of this is anticipated. Then uh, in 3.2, the man Nicodemus came to him from Jerusalem by night. Now remember, John is the Rembrandt of the New Testament. He's very much uh, known, known by his quarrel between light and darkness. So Nicodemus is coming out of the darkness of Jerusalem mm -hmm. to the light of the world at night. That's right. That's significant. And then they, the city, New Jerusalem, has no need of the sun of the moon. The lamb is the lamb. The lamb Lamb is the lamb, for there is no night there. So we see that the, the earthly Jerusalem is a city of darkness. The heavenly yeah. Jerusalem is the city of light. Mm -hmm. Nicodemus asked Jesus, can a man enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born? That is a second birth. And in 26, holy is the one of Revelation, but as a part in the first resurrection, over these the second death has no power. So, so there seems to be a relationship there that we're mm -hmm. talking about second births and second deaths. 3, 13, and 29, he who descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, is the bridegroom. 21, 2, I saw the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. In 3, 14, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember? Yep, yep. Revelation 20, verse 2, he laid hold of the serpent, the dragon, the serpent of old, and threw him into the abyss. So on one, the serpent is lifted up, and the other, the serpent is cast down. Very rich theologically. There's a lot to be said about yes. that. 3, 17 to 21, that the world through him might be saved. That's Jesus speaking the gospel mm -hmm. to Nicodemus. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. In 21, 24 to 27, the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its, New Jerusalem's, light. Its gates shall not be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices lying shall ever come into it. They seem to be clearly related. 324, for John the Baptist had not even been cast into prison. 23 to 4 and 7, and he cast him into the abyss, that is, uh, Satan. Mm -hmm. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Well, that was the fate of John, see? And then Satan will be released from his prison. So that, that binding uh, will ultimately come upon the enemy. 336, he who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides upon him. 1915, he will rule them with a rod of iron, the wrath of God Almighty. Now we come to, I think, the most definitive clue about the identity of John's whore in Revelation, who is the whore of Babylon. And this, the, the vocabulary here and stuff is striking. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, the remarkable thing about um, the description of the whore of Babylon is that we're told you can't understand who she is 
apart from the wisdom of God. Mm -hmm. It's not given to man. It's not natural to man's, man's imagination. Um, because John says, when John sees her, he reacts by marveling mm -hmm. as though he's seen her before. Mm -hmm. It says he wonders, thalmazo, it's a very unique word. Classical Greek, you, you marvel when you see something that's divine. So he, he marvels when he sees her. And the angel says, why are you marveling? So he says, John then witnesses, I think when you recognize who she is, John is saying, when the believing heart sees who she is, you will wonder, you will marvel. Mm -hmm. And that means you're speechless. You cannot say a word. Your mind is addled. And then John says, um, here is the mind that has wisdom. He gives you a clue about who she is, but you have to have divine wisdom mm -hmm. really, truly to understand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we'll be told, but to really to understand who she is, I think, takes a divine wisdom. Mm -hmm. So the Samaritan woman who has come to draw water says, I have no husband. She lies about her marital state, mm -hmm. right? 17.1, the Babylonian harlot who sits upon the water says, I am not a widow. Well, she is a widow because she's killed her husband. Now, when John says in Revelation, here is the mind that has wisdom, mm -hmm. he says that the whore Babylon has had a relationship with seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the last, the seventh, has not yet come. What is, what is the interaction of Jesus who's meeting the Samaritan, mm -hmm. who everybody would have despised as, you know, like sure. a whore? And in fact, uh, what does he say? Jesus describes the Samaritan woman's old life in the city. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. In other words, she has had a, she has had a relationship with six men. Jesus will be the seventh. Five have fallen. One is. The seventh has not yet come. So he's not the final one. So the pattern there of five, one, and one, that's why John marvels in Revelation because he's seen her before. When the disciples came back and they saw Jesus speaking with this kind of a woman, it says they marveled. So John had marveled. And when he sees her in the vision in Revelation, mm -hmm. he recognizes her. And in recognizing her, the divine wisdom is telling him, I am the whore. Mm -hmm. That's me. From the perspective of the holiness in heaven, mm -hmm. I have nothing more to commend me than, than, the, than the reality of dealing with my sin makes me a harlot, mm -hmm. makes me a whore. Which, which anybody who goes a whoring after any other gods, which all of us have done, mm -hmm. anything we put up as idols means that we've been adulterers. And it's not a sexually charged no. word because... No. The sons of Israel go a whoring after the daughters of Moab in the Bible. So it's a, it just means that you've violated your duty of uh, a covenant obedience. Sure. It's really but I think it, it, you know, it goes back to even our you know, tragedy and comedy ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you don't understand the magnificent, wonderful, incredible grace of God unless you understand how bad it actually exactly. is. Until you can look in the mirror and realize that I'm that person, because because we very rarely do. We, we we normally look at other people and go, I'm not like them. Like in Luke 18, the when he says, you know, I, the publican. Right. He's, I'm not like this guy." You know, and um, when you and can it's go, it's better to be the publican. Of course it is. You know, which is who the, knows who yes, he because, is. Yes, because and that's Jesus's whole thing. He says, "You think you can see, 
but you're really blind. Mm-hmm. It's those that are blind that can really see. And I think that 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 encapsulates the gospel is that when when we understand our need, that that is when everything changes. And part of that everything changes is when we understand our need, we understand how deep uh, forgiveness we really That's right. needed. That's right. And if we understand how much we've been forgiven, mm-hmm. we will sure. be able to love much. Yeah. Right? The seed the seeds of every great sinner that has ever lived, every terrible tyrant or despot or whatever are in our, are DNA. In our DNA. Absolutely. And, you know, and we might not have sinned in the same way they did, but the but the ability to do that is within us all. It's the nature of fallen man. That's exactly right. Which means that when Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it's only when we realize that that we can understand. But but God in his great love towards us made us mm-hmm. alive together in Christ. You know, and that, that's that is understanding and comprehending the gospel. Yeah, he resurrects our spirits mm-hmm. so that we can then and gives us faith by which mm-hmm. we exercise our belief. Mm-hmm. And he justifies us. Now, the other thing is that the Samaritan woman is clearly the a type of the Babylonian whore, but she also becomes a type of the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what happens when the disciples come back and they see her and they're marvel that he's actually mm-hmm. speaking with this kind of a woman, she leaves the Savior, which is counterintuitive, because she's recognized who he is, mm-hmm. and she runs back into the city. John says she left her water pot. That's right. Because she had found a different kind of water that satisfied her thirst. Mm-hmm. She wasn't even mindful of her earthly thirst. That's right. So she goes back into the city to call everyone out. Come and see, is this man not the Christ? Sure. See, she's calling everybody. Sure. She becomes an evangelist. Sure. But she also, which is interesting, is she goes to the well by herself mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to have to deal with who she is and have the other women talking about whatever. So she comes to the well not to deal with her scars. She meets Jesus, though. She runs back into town, and she specifically says, come meet the man that told me everything I've ever done. So now the wounds and scars that took her to the well by herself in meeting Jesus, those scars now have become her testimony to the people in, inside the town. And, and a new and, community and is created. Yeah, and that's and that's the, that is the, the, the gospel there is that she's a type of bride. You know, um, when you get to um, resurrection morning and you have Mary Magdalene, she's a type of bride. You start to realize, you see the whore of Babylon, you realize, okay, hold on. What do all these people have in common? They're marginalized, that they've they've done great sin, and you realize, mm-hmm. hold on, that, that that's that's me. That that that's me. You know, um, a good friend of mine one time said that, you know, when we see the woman caught in adultery, we see Jesus and we see the Pharisees, that we don't want to read ourselves as I the woman caught in adultery of the Pharisees. We want to read ourselves as Jesus, but we can't. We're either one or the other. We're either the one caught in sin in desperate need of God, or, or we're the ones throwing sin. stones. Yes, you know, um, right. you know. And, and, and the reality is, is that's that is the difference in the gospel. If you still think that you can stow, throw stones at other people because you inherently have a righteousness that's within you, that th- that is a questionable position to have as a follower of Jesus. When you realize I am in desperate need of God, th- that's when the gospel has sunk in. I think, too, I mean, I, I remember the description of the horror of Babylon is she's drunk on the blood of the saints. And that's, I mean, she's, think about that. She's drunk mm-hmm. on the blood of the saints. Yeah. A vivid, awful yeah. picture. 
But how would the Apostle Paul have read that passage? Mm-hmm. What does he confess? You know? yeah. He had put to death. I mean, mm-hmm. he consented to the death of Stephen. Sure. And then he persecuted the church. Mm-hmm. And so he calls himself, at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. That's right. So he didn't lose sight. The wonderful, gracious ministry he had was because he recognized his weakness mm-hmm. and that the grace of sure. God, he took, that he took full measure. That's why I think um, Reformed theology exists is largely because of Paul and his clarity of expression. And he had a full sense of the measure of not knowing what it was like on the Damascus Road to be dead and then to be new, newly created. I think, I think we can see that. Mm-hmm. So the Samaritan woman calls for the people to come out of the city, and so they came out of the city. Mm-hmm. And in Revelation, the depiction of the bride is the voice came from heaven, come out of her. The, the, the wicked city, the harlot city, my people. And she says, um, Jesus says, I would have given you living water. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come. And in the Revelation, at the end of Revelation 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who is his thirst come. Let the one who will take the water of life without cost. So she, the type of, the whore of Babylon is the Samaritan woman, but then she becomes a type of the bride of Christ mm-hmm. as well. It's very clear. The connections, I think, are unmistakable. It's been the Jerusalem, chapter five, we find ourselves in Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, and that's interesting, you know, you, there is. you love that word. Yes, well, it's present tense. It means that this was written when Jerusalem was still standing. That's exactly right. And if, that, and, and if John and Revelation were written together, then they both were written before Jerusalem was destroyed. Which I and think is clear. I think it is too. Now, uh, five, two to four, now there is in Jerusalem a pool with five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. For an angel descended at a certain season and stirred the waters. That verse, of course, is contested. Was it five, three, or whatever? It's five, four. Five, four? Yeah. Um, that's contested, but anyway. I think that there's evidence. The chiastic patterning is completely upheaving textual criticism the way it's practiced. <laughs> and so here is a, an illustration of a fact where I think that there's yeah, some significance to it. Five, four. It's, it's just, just completely but it's weird. overwhelming in the majority of texts that have sure. been preserved. So here it says, I saw another angel descending in Revelation 18, 1 and 2, descending from heaven. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become the dwelling place of demons and a prison place for every unclean spirit. Just like um, the Bethesda pool and just like the temple, all the people who were blind and lame and sick went there to beg. Mm -hmm. So it defiled it. And here it says, I saw another angel descending from heaven. We see that paralleling the descent. The angels are ascending and descending. Mm -hmm. We see that all the way through these two books. Uh, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison place for every unclean spirit. And a strong angel took a stone and threw it into the sea. So the waters are stirred. Mm-hmm. So some evidence, I think, that's probative that that verse 5-4 should be there. Uh, 5-27, the Father has given him, that is Jesus' authority, to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And that corresponds to Revelation 19.11. In righteousness, he, that is Jesus, judges and makes war. Mm-hmm. And then 5.35, he, John the Baptist, was, bur- was a burning and shining lamp 
and you, Jerusalem, were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, but then they turned on him and extinguished his mm -hmm. light. And in 1823, the light of the lamp shall not shine in you, Babylon, anymore. So the city Babylon loses the bridegroom and the bride. So it yep. loses the comedic aspect of it. That's uh, because it puts to death mm -hmm. and drives, and the, the bride flees. So there's no joy left anymore, and there's no light left anymore once they've extinguished John and Jesus. 544, you, the Jews of the temple, received glory from one another. And in 1807, she, the harlot, glorified herself. So now this is not a universalism because the city of Babylon will be destroyed, just like Jericho was destroyed. Right. But there is a remnant that is marked by the least likely candidate, we think, exactly. to find the grace of God that is taken out of the city. You have to come out of this, all the way through the Bible. We are an, an, an exodus people. We come yeah. out of the wicked city and we are deliver, We're on our journey, a pilgrim journey then to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's great. You know, and um, I, I think of you know, the statement that says that like the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. The point being is that they're the ones who see, they saw their need. That's that's mm -hmm. why they wanted to be around Jesus because they, they knew they needed something, you know. So good. Let's uh, we'll uh, we're going to end here and we'll pick this back up again um, for another one and continue to work through uh, work through these um, together. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.